Our scripture for today's message comes to us from the book of 1 John, or the letter of 1 John, chapter 1. And today we're going to read verses 5 through 10. So hear now the reading of God's word. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. And Father, now, as we have heard your word being publicly read, we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you will make it effective through the preaching of the word. Lord, even though I am a broken, weak sinner, Lord, we pray that you would speak through me in spite of me, and that the words that come out of my mouth would not be ones that are tainted by my own um, incompetence or my own inadequacy but that it would be covered over by the grace of God. We pray, Jesus, that you would speak to us, even though we have gone through these past six days in a world that can just seem so discouraging, that the word seems so weak. Father, prove us wrong, and may the next few minutes do much and bring, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, if you've been keeping up with the news, no doubt by now you are aware of the growing turmoil that is plaguing the Roman Catholic Church, which all stemmed, I think my mic's a little hot, so if we can get that adjusted, but you are aware of the growing turmoil that has been plaguing the Roman Catholic Church. It all stemmed a few months back with the revelation, the atrocious revelation of what's been happening in the Pittsburgh Diocese, where there had been for decades a systematic attempt to cover up abuse of children by spiritual leaders of the church. And then, not too far back from that, we were aware of the high-profile scandal that plagued a very well-known prominent pastor here in America, a pastor by the name of Bill Hybels, who was the founding pastor of what is considered one of the, if not the most influential evangelical church in America today, the Willow Creek Church, based out in Chicago, Illinois. And when you consider the tremendous public fallout that not just those churches, but churches everywhere have suffered, you know, because of these two news events, you may be tempted to think that as long as churches and particularly their leaders can avoid high-profile scandals, then churches will be safe, then churches will be fine, right? Well, if that's what you think, I'm here to tell you, you could not be more wrong. You are dead wrong. As of January 2018, by the end of this week, over 100 to 200 churches will close their doors, not just for the week, but permanently. By the end of this year, estimates are ranging between six to 10,000 churches will close their doors by the end of this year. Christmas will be their last service. And here's the thing. If you take a closer look at these churches that are closing down permanently, many of these churches are not doing so because a high-profile leader has fallen into scandal. And because that is true, you know what that means? 
It means a church does not have to go through a tremendous high-profile scandal by one of their leaders in order for it to close. Churches can close for much less well-known reasons. In fact, church history has shown that churches that have been led by some of the most God-fearing, godliest people ever have closed down, never to be heard of again. Case in point, the passage that we're looking at today, 1 John, written by the Apostle John himself to his church in Ephesus. You would think that if, if the Apostle John, right, the original disciple of Jesus, the one that is known as the beloved disciple of Christ, you would think that if he was your pastor, then your church would continue on forever and ever, right? Wrong. To this day, New Testament scholars have no idea of whatever happened to this church, of why this church prematurely and permanently died, to where the only evidence of why we know it existed is because of these letters that still go on today in our Bible. Now, think about that for a moment. If a church led by one of the greatest Christians ever could close down and fall to pieces, then you better believe any church could fall apart, including this church this church. And because that is the case, we're going to take a look at the opening chapter of this very important letter in the hopes that we will succeed where this church that was originally written to failed, that we would heed the words of wisdom that the apostle John is trying to teach us in the hopes that we can avoid the very thing, the very sins that caused its downfall. Okay. And today the Apostle John is going to teach us of what the sin was that eventually caused this church to crumble before it. And you'll see in a moment that it's not a high-profile sin, and it's not even a sin that was perpetuated by the leaders of the church, namely by John himself. It's a sin that I refer to as spiritual snobbery. I want to talk to you guys today about spiritual snobs and the snobbery that comes out of their spiritual snobbiness. So two things, just two that I want to share with you this morning. First, let's talk about what spiritual snobbery does. And then finally, let's talk about how spiritual snobbery can be avoided, what it does and how it can be avoided. Okay, let's jump right in. First, what spiritual snobbery does. Now, we all know what a snob is, or maybe a better way to put it, we all know a snob in our lives, do we not? What is a snob? Merriam-Webster gives this definition of a snob, quote, one who tends to rebuff, avoid, or ignore those regarded as inferior. One who tends to rebuff, avoid, or ignore those regarded as inferior. In other words, a snob is someone who looks at themselves very highly by looking down on someone who they believe is inferior to them. Typically, these kinds of people have a characteristics that kind of sets them apart. They have some special skill, some ability, They've acquired some special possession or they've experienced some special experience. And because of these things, they think that validates their belief that they are somehow superior over everybody else. People can be snobs about their wealth. They can be snobs about their skills, their education, their looks. But the most ridiculous and really the most dangerous things that people can be snobby of is their spirituality. People who think that they've had some sort of spiritual encounter, some spiritual experience, or have some spiritual knowledge that in their mind warns them to puff themselves up and look down and criticize and judge others. That right there, friends, is a spiritual snob. Now, with that in mind, consider how our passage begins. Starting in verse 5, we read, This is the message we have heard from him, Jesus, and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Pause right there. A little background just to be aware of what's going on. Whenever you read any of the Apostle John's uh, writings, whether it's the Gospel of John, the letters of John, or the book of Revelation, one of the things that you'll see repeatedly throughout his writings is this imagery of light and darkness, okay? And typically, when most people encounter this imagery of light and darkness, they interpret it as if it's referring to ethics, ethically, right? Anything that is light represents all that is good, all that is righteous, all that is godly, and darkness, kind of like the dark side in Star Wars, represents all that is unrighteous, all that is evil, all that is sinister, light and darkness. And of course, indeed, that is definitely part of what John has in mind when he refers to light in our passage. But he is also trying to emphasize something else, which I'm going to argue is his main emphasis, which is what? John is trying to tell us by referencing light like this of what light does. What does light do? It reveals things, right? It illuminates and shows what's really there that before was hidden before the light was there, right? If you're in a dark alley or if you're walking through an interior building with dark hallways and no light, you don't see anything. But as soon as you flip on that switch, as soon as the alley light comes on, all that was hidden is now revealed. All that was obscure is now transparent. And for John to say that God is light, what he is saying is that God is a God who reveals himself. He's not a God who is hidden, but he is a God who is transparent to anything that we could know about him. He freely, joyfully reveals himself to us, right? Theologians refer to this as the revelatory nature of God. Now we ask, why is John going out of his way to emphasize this attribute, this characteristic of God, that he's a God who is not shy, who is not hidden, who is not introvert, but he goes out of his way to reveal everything that we can know about him. Why? Short answer, He's trying to show us that our God, he is not a spiritual snob. Let me explain. You know, one of the things that snobs love to do is to emphasize how special they are. And the primary way that they do this is by having these exclusive insider clubs, right? You have a rich snob, you have that very exclusive country club. You have an educated snob, you have those prestigious alumni associations that only those people can go to. If you are a social network snob because you have connections that no one else does, you're permitted to go into those exclusive VIP sections of those exclusive clubs and restaurants that everyone else can't even get into, right? And the underlying purpose behind these exclusive gatherings is to distinguish themselves from, quote, unquote, those people, those who are not as well-educated, those who are not as good-looking, those who are not well-off financially as we are. And by having these exclusive associations, what are they doing? They're hiding, right? They're living in darkness, because now they can go where no one else can go. They can experience what no one else can experience. They can know things that no one else can know. Snobs are hidden. And because they are hidden, they stay away from the light. They are living in darkness. And there were these kinds of people making up a portion of John's church community. Now, of course, they were not the majority, but there was a critical core mass and they were growing. They were a group of people who called themselves quote-unquote Christians and yet thought they were so set apart, so unique, that they gave them a sense of superiority against brothers and sisters within their own church. 
Some scholars think that these quote-unquote Christians were an early form of a specific heretical cult that later developed into something known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism. And the thing about these pre-Gnostic Christians is that in public, they were very gregarious, very warm, very welcoming to anyone and everybody. Like, hey, good to see you, friend. Good to see you, brother, sister. I love you. Welcome. We're so glad that you're here. But in private, right? in their own little hidden gatherings with a select few of people that they personally invited and approved of. They would gossip, they would criticize, they would condemn. And they would be so opinionated to the point where it got so bad that they even turned against their own leader, John himself, to the point where they accused him, the apostle John of all people, of not being a genuine follower of Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that you would dare say a man who literally touched and smelled and kissed Jesus himself was not a genuine follower of Christ, a personal eyewitness of Jesus? Said, no, we know that even you, John, are not a part of the true way, of the true discipleship of Christ. And so what happened? This group grew and they severed the church. They tore it apart inside out. Now, sad to say, this kind of spiritual snobbery still exists. There are churches out there who will claim that unless you experience a certain kind of spirituality that only you can experience in their church, unless you get baptized in their church, unless you participate in some event, some spectacle, some retreat, some conference, then you're not a genuine Christian. Or maybe you're like a low-level Christian, but you're at the very fringes of genuine faith. You're not really part of the core, right? See, this is what spiritual snobbery does. It condescends, it criticizes, it judges, and it ultimately separates people within the community with the mindset of an us versus them, destroying any solid foundation of creating a biblical community. And so in response to all this, the apostle John says this about them in verse six. What does he call them? Liar, liar. Look again what he says. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What is he saying? He's saying our God is a God of light. And as followers of God, we also are to be people of light, meaning we don't hide ourselves with exclusivity because we carry a superiority mindset because we've had certain experiences or we have certain histories or we have certain knowledges that set us apart from those within our own community that makes, us in, that makes them inferior to us. And so it manifests in the forms of insider groups, in forms of cliques, in the forms of those who are in against those who are out, right? Creating tribalism, separationism, exclusiveness, within a body that is supposed to be all light, all access, all truth available for all. Practically, what all of this means is simply this. If you claim to be a Christian, right, and yet you carry a certain presupposition that somehow you are a little bit more of a Christian than people in this community because you have a certain history, a certain knowledge, a certain experience, or a certain position within the church, right? The apostle John would say, you're a liar. You're not a true Christian. If you claim to be a Christian, and yet you have a tendency of just gathering with a certain select few of people where the tone of conversation is always criticizing, condemning, gossiping, always wanting to know the 411 that nobody else knows, John would say, you're a liar. 
you're not a true Christian. And here's the tragedy of it all. Being a spiritual snob, walking in darkness, being hidden within a community where there should be no hiddenness at all, it creates turmoil and it destroys the stabilizing structure of a biblical community. Spiritual snobs are like termites. They're hidden and yet they create instability. They create chaos little by little to where without warning, all of a sudden, one day a church, which on the outside seems so sturdy, so healthy, so strong, evaporates, obscured, never to be seen of again. And the question that we need to ask ourselves, NCF, is how do we make sure that we don't become that kind of church? How do we make sure we don't follow the steps of what this church ended up doing in Ephesus, and now there's no legacy of faith for them to propagate? The answer leads me to my final point, how spiritual snobbery can be avoided. Starting in verse 7, the Apostle John says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here the Apostle John shows us how a church can avoid spiritual snobbery. It requires walking in the light. Because as he just says, when we walk in the light, then what? We have fellowship with one another. So here's the question. What exactly does it mean to walk in the light? What exactly is it about the light that we are able to walk into it. He tells us in the second half, right? And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. In other words, when we have faith in the blood of Jesus, we are walking in the light. Now you're thinking to yourself, how does that make sense? What does the blood of Jesus have anything to do with walking in the light and hence how it can avoid us becoming spiritual snobs? Well, Scholars believe that John is attacking the core heretical belief that these spiritual snobs in his church believed in, right? Let me explain what that was. These snobs, these pre-Gnostic Christians believed that when God came into the world as Jesus Christ, that he came in not as a real man, but as a man who only appeared to be a man, right? That he wasn't really here in physical form. He did not have flesh and bones, even though he looked like he did, which meant when he died on the cross, he didn't really die because there was no physical substance there. It was all a performance. It was all an illusion. And the blood that was spilled on Calvary's cross was not really spilled. Listen to how one New Testament scholar by the name of, um, what's his name? Barry Jocelyn, what he says, quote, Gnostic docetism was an early church heresy that argued that the humanity and sufferings of the early Christ only seemed real, yet were not real. Jesus seemed like a human, but actually was not. Docetism is a branch of the larger theosophical potpourri known as Gnosticism. Given its emphasis on a higher knowledge, docetism held that spirit is good and matter is evil, and that there could be no direct mingling of the supreme God, who is spirit, and the material universe, including man, since matter is essentially evil. Therefore, how could the Christ, a spirit being, become flesh, which by definition is evil? The realm of the material is the locus of sin and evil, and the divine Christ could thus never actually become a man. Therefore, Jesus only seemed to be a man and only seemed to suffer and die. Interesting. Interesting. This was the core belief that allowed these spiritual snobs in John's church to puff themselves out and give them a sense of justification because they were in the know. You guys think that, that God really became a man, but we have the inside scoop. We know it was all an illusion, right? And yet John says that's the very reason why your spiritual stops. 
But conversely, that's also what you need to fight against in order to not become a spiritual snob. What do I mean? Think about it. What does John say? If Jesus didn't actually come, right, what does that mean? There is no purification of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins. And if there is no forgiveness of sins, there is no everlasting life. You're spiritually dead, right? That's what the gospel says. Through Jesus' shedding of his blood on the cross, he appeased the wrath of God, giving us forgiveness of sins, thereby allowing us to have a relationship with God. And John is saying, you guys don't believe this. You guys don't believe in the gospel because you deny the very essence of what makes the gospel the gospel. You deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And the Gnostics, you know what they would say? That's right. I don't believe in the gospel. Or maybe a more accurate way to put it, we don't believe we need the gospel. Do you know what you need to believe about yourself in order to believe the gospel? What does the gospel say about you? The gospel says that apart from Jesus, you are a wicked, selfish, perverted, evil person. You are so flawed and so miserable and so pathetic that in the eyes of God, you are as good as dead to him, right? These Gnostics would not believe that. And when you're in a mindset where you don't think you're that bad, you can easily point to things about yourself as justification to why you think you're superior when you're really not, right? But the moment, conversely, you are aware that you are broken, that you are messed up, no matter how good-looking you are, no matter where you got educated, no matter how much money you have, no matter how much you know, no matter what exclusive experiences that you've had in this world, none of those things will be able to alleviate the sense of despair and brokenness. When you really understand how really wicked and broken you are as sinners, nothing that we accomplish, nothing that we have access to can ever make us feel better. Nothing of those things can even actually make us better. That's the whole point. See, the beginning of spiritual snobbery begins when you think that you're not broken, right? Because when that foundation is set, it is easy to think, well, I'm not that broken. Therefore, I can look at things about me that are unique, my, my looks, my education, and use that as leverage, right, to think that I'm better than you. I have more of a scoop than you do. I'm more evolved. I'm more better. But as soon as you tear that foundation down, by recognizing you are who you are apart from Jesus. You have no basis. Who cares if I went to Harvard? Who cares if everyone thinks I'm beautiful? Who cares if I've been able to, you know, climb the mountains of Papua New Guinea? Who cares? I'm a sinner. Those things don't do anything. They don't make me aware of myself in such a way that I think I'm better than you. I know. That even if you have not had those experiences, even if you don't know these things, I am just as lost as you. We are all lost together. See, that's the beginning of how you overcome spiritual snobbery. You get rid of the basic assumption that allows you to stand on this deluded belief that you are something when you're really nothing at all. Right? But don't misunderstand me. By saying all this, I am not saying that it is a virtue to be flawed. I am not saying that you should go out of your way to be inferior and that you should boast about that. There's nothing virtuous about that. But what I am saying 
is that one of the ways that we build a true, solid, sturdy biblical community is when we have the boldness and honesty to look at ourselves with sobriety and truth into our minds to where we know that there is nothing in here, nothing in our lives, nothing in our resume, nothing in our past, nothing in where we're thinking we're going, that we think that we are better off than anyone else in this room, right? Because we recognize, we value the underlying hope that it takes for you to be that honest. And you know what it is? It's faith in the gospel. Because you know what else the gospel says, aside from the fact that you're wicked and broken and perverted? That in Jesus, because of the shedding of his blood, you're pure, you're righteous, you're clean. And as far as he is concerned, when he looks at you and when he looks at Jesus, virtually identical. Let me ask you an honest question, Christian. Let's say, just as an experiment, let's say you're dead and you're standing in front of God the Father, and standing right next to you is Jesus. And you thought of this question, God, do you love me as much as you love this man sitting next to me? Who do you think God is going to say he loves more, Jesus or you? The answer, the same. I love you just the same, identical. I don't love you more than my son, and I certainly don't love you less. I love you the same. Why? Because his blood that was spilled covers you. There is no difference whatsoever. Why do you think Jesus says at one point in the gospel, everything that I've learned from the father, I now give to you. You know why? Jesus is not a spiritual snob. He doesn't say, I have this powerful, exclusive relationship with God that no one else can have, and therefore I'm so much better than you. No, he shares that very knowledge. He shares that very experience so that that could be your knowledge, your experience. That is what we're called to be with one another. Do you see that? Now, practically, what does all this mean? It means this. Listen, if you're here today, and you've been with us for years, but you've been carrying this assumption and this assumption has been growing that you think you have it more together and that you're more better, spiritually speaking, than any of us here, you don't belong here. This isn't your home. Let me say that again. If any of you in here, I don't care how long you've been here. If you've been here longer than me, that's fine. But if you think that you are somehow spiritually more inside with God or more aware of things to where you think you are somehow at an elevated level that gives you a sense of justification to be superior, this is not your church. You don't belong here. But let me say this as pastor. I want you here, and I want you to belong here. And the way it works is where you can say, I don't care where I went to school, even if it's better than your school. You know, Yeah, I went to Binghamton, the, the Harvard of Sunnis, right? But that doesn't mean anything. I'm just as wretched as you, Pastor John, even though you went to UNC Chapel Hill, one of the best schools in the whole world. You know, We're the same. Amen to that. Can we say we're the same? Can we say that none of us have an advantage over the other, therefore none of us has room to ever have a sense of spiritual snobbiness whatsoever, but instead we can be open to one another, not enclosed, not hidden, not exclusive, not tribal, not cliquish, but really open to each other. If you can say, that's who I am, PJ, I am a failure and I'm a hot mess. But the more I'm aware of God's love for me 
And the more that love is extended to me by all of you, by giving me grace, by letting me grow out of my selfishness, my own sinfulness, to where I can grow in sanctification, I would say to you, this is your home. This is where you belong. And we need you. I need you. We need each other in that way. But the moment we don't have that, that is the moment this church is doomed. My hope and prayer is that as much as I want to be like the Apostle John, I don't want to be him like this. I don't want to end up as a pastor who's lost his church because his people did not grasp, God's people, excuse me, has not grasped the glorious gospel. So here's my question. Have you grasped it? Do you know it? And do you accept of what it says about you both before and after through Jesus' shedding of blood on the cross? I want to end my message with a couple next steps. Number one, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and today's message really resonated with you to the point where you're ready now to move forward in faith and accept Christ as Lord, take this time now and accept who God says you are apart from him so you can finally accept who you really are in Jesus. And we would love to talk to you afterwards. I would love to be uh, a helpful guide into your next steps of Christ. Number two, honestly ask yourself, have I participated in Gnostic-like behavior in this church? Have you set aside yourself, hidden yourself from other people within this community? And as a result, has it left you feeling like you are more in and everyone else is more out than you? If yes, you need to confess and you need to repent and you need to finally belong to this family as God calls you to be and what I want you to be. Number three, spend an extended time of prayer this month, your whole month in your Oikos group that God will protect our church family from any inner circle insider dynamics by the members of our church. So where we remember we are all equally broken and equally need Christ, specifically the bloody work of Christ on our behalf let's pray father we need your grace and mercy now because as we've seen so many churches in light of all that's been happening are closing at an alarming rate and father if there is no one here to be witnesses of the gospel if there's no preacher to preach no community to live out and apply how can there be hope for this broken world father we see <clears throat> the gravity of our call to this world that is so dark and the need for us to be light and needs to begin here in this community. Father, would you help us to live that out? Enable us by your spirit to really believe the gospel, that we could really believe the bloody work of Jesus on the cross so that it can begin the pathway of us laying a solid foundation of a community that is truly a community of grace and mercy, a community of the gospel. Father, we can't do it without you. We hope and pray that you will do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.